Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on New York Times bestselling author, Dr. David Perlmutter. I'm involved in, in looking at what's called continuous glucose monitoring because I think it's a really handy way of knowing your blood sugar. And there's such pushback amongst mainstream doctors to allow non-diabetics to know what their blood sugars are doing. My gosh, that's how you keep people from becoming diabetic in the first place. Why wouldn't you embrace that? We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper. Thanks for pressing play today. Today, we have an awesome guest. His name is Dr. David Perlmutter. He has a brand new book called Drop Acid. What a great name. The Surprising New Science of Uric Acid, The Key to Losing Weight, Controlling Blood Sugar, and Achieving Extraordinary Health. Uric Acid. Huh, what a great conversation to really understand what uric acid does in the body. Now, we had Dr. Richard Johnson on the show before to talk about his book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, where we also took a deep dive into uric acid. So that would be a great episode to listen to after this one. We'll drop a link down below. Dr. David Perlmutter has been on my radar to interview him since we launched the podcast about three years ago. I've been a big fan of his work for so many years. He has great books out there. You've probably read them, Grain Brain and Brain Maker and a few others. Uh, and this book is a great book, just like all of his books. And we're going to dive deep into his backstory, why he decided to sway away from conventional allopathic care to more functional medicine and some of the arrows that he received as he made that transition. We get into some of the disgusting stats out there that 88% of Americans are unhealthy. One in three of Americans have hypertension. It's predicted by the year 2030, which is not too far from right now, about 50% of adults will be obese. Not just overweight, but obese. And he ties in uric acid to the problem with many of these conditions. Now, what is uric acid? You're going to learn about that, how it comes from alcohol, purines, and fructose. That's the main conversation here, fructose. And yeah, fructose comes in fruit, but it's not really the fructose in fruit, which is more natural. It's the fructose and high fructose corn syrup and other methods that is causing the issue. Now, he says the body could handle about five grams of fructose at a time, for most people. But the most important thing to do here is to test your uric acid levels. One of the most common questions I get asked, Ben, I want to do keto. I want to do carnivore, but I'm scared of getting gout. Uric acid, gout have been tied together. 
I ask him if there's a cause for concern, and you'll get to hear his answer. We get into ATP, adenosine triphosphate, ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and other metabolic functions in the body. I asked him about his thoughts on animal-based protein and purines, and he's really focused on the fructose. He says if there's five things that contribute to uric acid level, high uric acid levels, it's these five things. Fructose, 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 maybe purines and alcohol, but it's fructose, 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 and you're going to learn about that. (laughs) He talks about the optimal ranges for your uric acid levels to be, how to test uric acid levels, which the best way I I recommend you get uh, like a finger prick, similar to like a keto mojo for ketones. I'll put a link down below for the ones I use. We get into certain meats that might raise uric acid in some people, including, I'm sorry to say, Organ meats, sardines, anchovies, which are higher in uh, purines. We get into beer and wine, especially beer being high in purines. We get into the role of estrogen and how that well, that makes sense that women tend to have lower uric acid levels, but when they go through perimenopause, menopause, their uric acid increases, and there's a relationship there, and that relationship is estrogen. We'll talk about that. We talk about his book, Drop Acid, which focuses on the pivotal role of uric acid metabolism and metabolic diseases. So if you want to learn about fructose, uric acid, gout, and the metabolism, the mitochondria, this is the episode for you. He's got great analogies. He's a funny guy. He's also Florida-based. He's in Naples. I'm in Miami, not too far away. I had a blast. It was a great conversation, Something, a conversation I was looking forward to for many, many months and I'm glad we made it happen. And you're going to benefit from this conversation. So before I bring him on, I want to get to the Apple Podcast rating review of the day. This is a five-star review from David titled, Keeping on Track. This podcast is a godsend to me on the straight and narrow. As a medical device sales rep, I have a lot of time in my truck at times. Listening to current and past episodes is a great way for me to keep my mindset up on a daily basis. Highly recommend Ben and his guest. It is awesome. Thank you, David. I'm so glad you're using that time wisely. Thanks for allowing us to hang out with you in your truck as you go from client to client making those sales. I appreciate you listening. I'm glad you're listening to past episodes. We're over 400 episodes. So if you're brand new to the show, do what David is doing. Go listen to all of the other ones or as many as you can. We have a ton and we release three episodes a week, three new episodes a week. So we are committed. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do so right now. It really helps the show grow and change more lives. All right, let's talk about uric acid and let's drop acid with Dr. Perlmutter. David Perlmutter, Dr. David Perlmutter, is a board-certified neurologist and a six-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine. That's right here in my backyard, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, the Journal of Applied Nutrition, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he's a frequent lecturer at symposiums sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, Harvard University, and serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. 
His books have been published in 32 languages, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, awesome book, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. Other New York Times bestsellers include Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, and Brain Wash, co-written with Austin Perlmutter, MD. He is the editor of The Microbiome and The Brain, authored by top experts in the field and published in the December 2019 by CRC Press. His latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is a New York Times bestseller called Drop Acid, where you're going to learn right now the pivotal role of uric acid in metabolic diseases. Here's Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm delighted to be with you today, Ben. Fellow Floridian, you're just a, a hot alligator alley away from me here in Miami. You're in Naples, and we're going to drop some acid together. I'm sure you had so many hosts say that with you. <laughs> it's true. There, there are a couple of questions I know later in the interview that uh, everybody asks, you know, how? what about fruit? We'll get there. Yeah, we'll definitely get there. We'll, we'll talk all about your book. And I've read all your books. Incredible. You're now seven times New York Times bestselling author, right? Actually, only six. Oh, only six. Oh, yeah, only. Too too bad it's only six, right? C congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be many more along the way. Before we get into the book, let's get into your backstory. Uh, a little bit of, uh, in a nutshell, if you could share why you decided to dedicate your research and your life to the gut, the brain, and now to uric acid. Well, I left Miami after my residency, came here to Naples to practice neurology, and I practiced mainstream neurology for 20 years. And towards the end of that period, I was really disenchanted because I wasn't really treating problems. I was only treating symptoms. We were ignoring the fire and just treating the smoke. And I began exploring what underlies making a good brain go bad. And I realized that there were plenty of uh, researchers looking at that, trying to figure out, for example, what underpins Alzheimer's, what is the relationship between toxin exposure and Parkinson's disease, which is now considered you know, mainstream. But even back then, people were starting to talk about it. And I needed more. And I wanted to really be helping people, not just with their symptoms, but really with their disease process. And believe it or not, actually work to create programs that would help them prevent the very diseases that we were trying to treat. And I began to realize that uh, lifestyle choices really play a central role uh, as we architect our brain's future. And that really led me to begin implementing lifestyle medicine into my practice and began to get really interesting, positive results getting people, for example, off of gluten and seeing improvements in their movement disorders and their headaches, realizing that I did not discover this. It had already appeared in the literature uh, using some innovative protocols that we developed for Parkinson's. Now that we understood not just what part of the brain was degenerating, but finally why and targeting that, it really brought back a lot of excitement. It really rekindled uh, my understanding about why I wanted to be a physician in the first place and made things really uh, very exciting for me. I was so much looking forward to going to work for the most part, but I had an epiphany realizing that it wasn't going to happen in my mainstream practice with my two other partners who were nice people, good people, good friends. But I think we all came to an understanding that the things I was exploring, they weren't going to embrace and we had a really, a very amicable split. I went on my own, opened a clinic, 
uh, with two employees, hung up my shingle, hoping for the best. And then over the years, you know, it, it became obvious that people became, were becoming more and more interested in what they could do beyond simply take a pill for their symptoms to treat and even prevent their brain issues. So things accelerated at that point. And then ultimately I felt it was necessary to really get the word out about what we've been, we were discovering. And I began lecturing to groups of, call it functionally minded or alternatively minded, integratively minded doctors and other healthcare providers. And I was very uh, warmed to be uh, embraced by these groups because nobody was talking neurology. Everything, you know, there were other fields of medicine that lent themselves quite well to an alternative functional approach, but there was no functional neurology being done in those days. Uh, so it felt very good for to be amongst people who recognized that this could be important. Finally, I decided to begin memorializing my clinical experience and wrote Grain Brain. That was a game changer for uh, many reasons, for a lot of people, and certainly for yours truly. That book ultimately was published in 32 languages around the world and really let people understand that our lifestyle choices have a, a huge uh, impact in terms of our brain's destiny. Who knew? So it really began the, the groundwork for people to understand the notion of preventive neurology, a preventive program for the brain. You know, people, even back then, we're talking about the heart smart diet, which uh, back then was low fat, no eggs, right? But we began talking about the brain smart diet, brain smart lifestyle choices, et cetera, that have now been so fully uh, vetted and validated worldwide that people now understand that your risk of Alzheimer's is dramatically lowered if you exercise, if you keep your blood sugar in check, uh, and various things that people do. The relationship between risk of Alzheimer's and poor quality sleep, for example. So these things you know, we touched upon early on, but now are you know, the, beyond just the fringe or now have been incorporated into the box, whereas they were outside of the box years ago. So that's what I've been doing. And, you know, since Grain Brain, which focused on gluten and certainly sugar and refined carbohydrates, I began exploring the interrelationship between the gut and the brain, and more particularly, the relationship between the microbes living within the gut and how they influence the brain's destiny. Wow, what a stretch. You know, that relationship was profoundly disparate until those days. I then began to explore wiring of the brain, how our day-to-day -day actions and choices affect how our brains are wired, and importantly, how that wiring affects our day-to-day -day choices, and how more and more with time, we are locking ourselves away from being able to make decisions that think about other people, that think about the future, that are less impulsive, and our brain wiring is changing to being more focused on acting from a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is impulsive and very narcissistic and self-centered, uh, and what we can do to reverse that. And then most recently, I've explored the incredible impact that elevation of uric acid has uh, in relationship to disturbing our metabolism. Why that's important to me is the recognition that metabolic disturbances are profoundly related and in fact underpin our most dreaded brain diseases like Alzheimer's, 
but also coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, and even some forms of cancer. So it's really so fundamentally important that we do everything we can to regain control over our metabolism. And that means, you know, change our lifestyle choices in such a way that we help to lower our blood sugar, improve our insulin sensitivity, help reduce our production and storage of body fat, uh, for example, and certainly uh, help our bodies stop thinking uh, that winter is coming, in which case all of these things are activated. And that's what we know uric acid elevation does. It's telling our bodies, quick, prepare for food scarcity, prepare for winter, make fat, store fat, raise the blood sugar and raise the blood pressure. So it was the, the circuitous path I took to understanding and learning about uric acid that has led to what's now become a really burgeoning science globally that's exploring not only the relationships of uric acid mechanistically to causing these problems, but obviously more importantly, what in the heck can we do about it once it's elevated to bring it back under control? So what I love about your work, Dr. David, is the fact that you give a lot of people hope because the old paradigm, the old premise is that if you got cancer that runs in the family, diabetes, et cetera, it's just a matter of time before you get it, right? But what you're sharing, your premise, and my premise too, I share the same thing. You actually can make lifestyle changes and decisions to actually prevent a lot of these diseases and conditions. So your books demonstrate that. My question for you before we get into uric acid and your new book, when you made that transition from conventional wisdom to alternative wisdom, did you receive any backlash from oh your colleagues? Gosh, yes. Like, what were some of the things they were saying about you? You're a quack, or, or what were they? It has never stopped. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it's less now than it was, but you know, I. Uh, it's just the way it is. People tend to be down on what they're not up on, and I always wish that the people who are my biggest critics could sit down with me in a pleasant way and have a debate about the you know the, the peer-reviewed science that underlies what we are saying. But, you know, I fully understand that people are still recommending low-fat diets in mainstream medicine. And again, you know, people are down on what they're not up on. So I've put myself in the mindset of if people weren't pushing back on what I'm saying, then I wasn't doing my job because it would mean that what I'm doing is status quo. And Ronald Reagan famously said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in. So we have to challenge the status quo day in and day out and, and be comfortable with occasionally being wrong. That's part of what we do is, uh, is changing our messaging based upon what we are learning. That's how we move the ball down the field. You know, if you would have asked me 30 years ago, what's a good diet, you would have gotten a really, I think, a diametrically opposed uh, answer in comparison to what I would tell you today based upon what the science back then was telling us. And now the science is saying, hey, you know, dietary fat happens to be very important, provided good quality fat. We can talk about what that means. Uh, whereas in the day, it was all fat is literally off the table. It doesn't matter whether it's hydrogenated margarine uh, by definition or it's extra virgin olive oil. It's fat, it goes. You know, and that, 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 that just challenges the notion of the Mediterranean diet, of what our ancestors ate. Uh, and But we we bought into that because that's what the journals were telling us. Uh, and at the same time, what happened? Calories had to come from somewhere. Where would they come from? Carbs. And with time from refined carbs and sugars, and we saw how that worked out, 
You know, we're seeing it even today, how that's working out where, you know, a third of American adults is obese and that number is going to increase to 50% in the distant future, i.e. the year 2030. And how distant is that future? Do the math. Where 83 million Americans are pre-diabetic and, you know, over 30 million Americans are actually diabetic right now as we speak, meaning about 40% of American adults are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And, you know, the notion that, well, I'm pre-diabetic, so I'm not diabetic, so therefore I'm okay, is ridiculous. I mean, you know, you have a blood sugar of 125 and the doctor says you're pre-diabetic, or 124, let's be fair, and you're pre-diabetic thinking you have a safety margin, you're in trouble. You're already deeply in trouble. And, you know, interestingly, I'm I'm involved in, in looking at what's called continuous glucose monitoring because I think it's a really handy way of knowing your blood sugar. And there's such pushback amongst mainstream doctors to allow non-diabetics to know what their blood sugars are doing. My gosh, that's how you keep people from becoming diabetic in the first place. Why wouldn't you embrace that? So the answer to your question is you bet. There has been pushback uh, over the years and I've put myself in the place of being good with it, in fact, uh, hoping for it. Because if people aren't pushing back, then I'm not putting them in a place of some mild discomfort, which is where they, where people need to be because they're not comfortable with having to give up on what they've learned and what they've accepted when suddenly new ideas are presented. But that's progress. Yeah, that's progress. I, I love that that mindset. And the CGM part, it's so important. If we could get our, a CGM in the hands of people who are not diabetic or pre-diabetic, but people who want to prevent getting there, game changer. I've done CGMs for months on end, and I've interviewed Levels and Nutrisense. The cool thing about these companies now, they're making it more accessible and readily available to people and overcoming a lot of these barriers. But I've seen the same thing with a lot of my students in my academy. They talk to their doctor about getting a continuous glucose monitor and they say, you're not pre-diabetic or diabetic. You know, we can't write you the prescription. And it's unfortunate that that's the case. So that's why I love companies that are breaking that rule, not breaking the rule, but overcoming the barriers and helping it, helping these individuals. Yeah, get I mean, it. I think one of the greatest examples of that, probably one of the worst examples of that was uh, a few years ago when I would want to get a PSA, prostate specific antigen on a, a patient uh, as a screening test for prostate cancer. Medicare wouldn't cover it unless they had prostate cancer. Gosh. Anyway, but uh, to be sure, I think it's great that people have access to knowing their blood sugar, knowing their uric acid levels, uh, getting it from their doctor or using a home uric acid monitor, which is super easy to use. Uh, and it's right there where we were a few years ago and checking our blood sugar at home. Same kind of a thing. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink, for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called good idea, and it is a great idea if you're trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. 
It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. So when you wrote the book, I know the story. You were exercising, you were jogging, listening to Peter Atia, and then Richard Johnson, who I had on my show, awesome guy, was speaking about uric acid and inspire you to gather all the research you can and put it into a book. Why did it inspire you so much? Because there's so many different things you could have written a book about and you already have, but why was it uric acid that you wanted to really focus in on? Well, it was so out of left field. I mean, you know, I like most of my medical colleagues have only looked at uric acid in the context of kidney stones and gout. And while we had known that uh, people who are overweight or diabetic or have elevated blood pressure have an elevation of their uric acid, until that moment, I didn't realize it was not just, didn't happen to be elevated in these people, it was causing their problems. That was huge. I mean, there was a great study published in 2016 in uh, a collaborative work from uh, researchers in Turkey and Japan entitled Uric Acid in the Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to a Central Player. Meaning that again, we saw it in correlation with these disease processes, but now we began to understand how it's not just happens to be elevated, it's causing to some degree, these issues. That's empowering. Why is that empowering? Because now we have a new tool. Now we've just opened up the toolbox and added a powerful, simple tool for individuals who are struggling with their blood sugar, their weight, their blood pressure. Not that their other approaches are going to you know, magically disappear, but this might help them reduce, possibly stop medication, for example. And you know anything that we can do to help people improve their metabolism is going to help them live a longer and healthier life from any perspective as it relates to chronic degenerative conditions of any type, whether it's renal failure, blood pressure issues that ultimately end up being heart attacks, uh, and even as it relates to senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. One interesting study followed a group of uh, 1,600 individuals for a 12-year period and demonstrated that those individuals with the highest level of uric acid, in this case, it was only above seven, which the average uric acid in America right now is six, amazing, had an 80% increased risk of dementia, a 55% increased risk specifically of Alzheimer's disease, a disease for which we have no treatment, and a 155% increased risk of vascular or mixed dementia. Now, again, we don't have a fix for these problems, but here we see this relationship to uric acid. We know uric acid's involved with raising the blood pressure. That's bad for the brain, leads to vascular disease. We know that uric acid directly leads to insulin resistance, and that's twofold bad for the brain. Why? Because it leads to problems with how insulin works in the brain in terms of nurturing the neurons as well as how it works in the brain in terms of glucose delivery. So, you know, these all make sense. You know, Alzheimer's is, is a disease of bioenergetics where the brain is failing as it relates to glucose utilization, can't burn the fuel that it needs 
the neurons begin to degenerate. Uric acid is playing a central role. Matter of fact, uh, Dr. Johnson and I are right now finishing an article talking exactly about this. So for me as a neurologist, this is huge. I mean, this is makes me salivate. You know, it's just, it's so good. It's so important. And uh, I guess that might be a little bit strange that I get so uh, involved in these kinds of things. But, you know, as a practicing neurologist and seeing families, not just the patient coming through the door and seeing what they're going through. And frankly, holding my father as he died from Alzheimer's disease, you know, if we can do things to spare that misery in other people, that's what we're going to do moving forward. That's what you're doing. Uh, Einstein said intellectuals solve problems, geniuses prevent them, right? Why, why shouldn't we be proactive instead of reactive? It's exactly why you're so excited about what you're doing. Now, my question is this. I know the human body wants to survive. It's the, the number one priority for the human body is survival. So what mechanism is going on with survival in mind to raise, elevate uric acid in the body? What is happening? So elevated uric acid and the downstream consequences of weight gain, weight storage, ratcheting down our energy utilization, raising the blood pressure and making us insulin resistant are all wonderful, terrific things, again, in the context of our ancestors. Those things all pave the way for survival during times of food scarcity and water scarcity. So in the late summer, early fall, when our ancestors would stumble upon some ripened blueberries, consume the, that fruit or other fruit, raise their fructose consumption, make more uric acid, it would be a clue for their bodies, a signal, a powerful screaming signal, winter's coming. We may not have food. So, you know, back in our, our primate ancestry, uh, 15 million years ago, the world became cooler and food was scarce. And a group of primates had a superpower. They made just a little more fat and they survived during a time, and actually lasted a million years. They survived uh, when others perished, and you, you, know, you talk about the importance of, of doing everything to survive. They had this superpower where they would make, not that they became obese, they'd make just a little bit more fat. But you play that out over hundreds of thousands and ultimately a million years, and it's a powerful selective uh, pressure process that selected this group that ended up having the higher uric acid. That was their trick. That was their superpower. And they, they had a higher uric acid because they lost the genes or the function of the genes to make an enzyme called uric case that would have otherwise broken down their uric acid. Because they lost this suite of genes, their uric acid levels were slightly higher. They made more fat. And that's why you and I and everyone around has a higher uric acid than other mammals because we don't have that enzyme, uricase. We have a tendency to retain uric acid. Our uric acid levels are higher as a survival mechanism for our primate ancestors, our paleolithic ancestors who didn't know uh, when they'd get food next. And therefore they had a powerful mechanisms on board to store fat and make fat and reduce energy expenditure. We see this in uh, bears, for example, before a bear will hibernate, what does it do? It eats fructose. It eats as much fruit as it can find, raising uric acid, making more fat, and then shutting down energy utilization so that while it's hibernating, it's not you know, using as many calories and can survive the hibernation. 
I submit that not many people are going to need to do that these days. We don't hibernate for six months. And therefore, we don't need to be storing this fat for the winter that never comes. And yet we do it 365 days a year. And it explains why we see such metabolic mayhem in our world today. Yeah, I mean, as a matter of fact, that uh, 2018 study from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, showed about 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. And that was before COVID. I imagine it's even higher now after COVID. Well, it is. And there's new research that indicates that getting COVID actually is associated with a 40 to 60% increased risk of type 2 diabetes. Further, we know that individuals who are admitted to the hospital with an elevated uric acid level, admitted for COVID, they happen to do a study, they admitted these people, then they check their uric acid levels. They have about a threefold increased risk for either going to the ICU, becoming intubated, or dying from COVID. But you're right, that 2018 study that you're referencing indicates that 88% of American adults has at least one component of the metabolic syndrome, meaning that in reality, only one in eight American adults is metabolically intact. And make no mistake about it, these metabolic issues open the door for the diseases we don't want to get, Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, diabetes. So uh, it's all about regaining control over our metabolism, that's for sure. Yeah, well, in this conversation, two out of two are metabolically healthy, so we're changing that statistic. Uh, you mentioned fructose. I, I will admit I'm metabolically intact. And so I'm, Me you know, too. I'm one in eight. I, all the parameters are where they need to be, but it's because I... A, understand it. B, I work for it. Yeah. I see what, believe me, I see professionally and in my family what happens, uh, what happened when me metabolism is deranged. And uh, we are the architects of our metabolic future. That's for sure. Yeah, I've seen it too. We, we both sh share a similar story. I, I lost my dad in 2014 through uh, the complications of diabetes. He suffered a massive stroke and nine months later, he lost his life. So I've seen it as well. And for 24 years, I was actually obese and metabolically unhealthy. So I started to dive into the information and then I did the things I needed to do to get metabolically intact, just like you. You mentioned fructose. Let's get into fructose. I know fructose is one of the main contributors to high uric acid levels. When somebody hears fructose, they think fruit. I thought fruit was good for me. Let's talk about the different ways we're getting fructose and what role does fruit play into this conversation? Sure. Let me take a step back, if I if I may. Um, your body is able to handle some fructose, uh, about five grams at a time. But when it is presented with higher levels of fructose, it overwhelms what the small intestine is able to do. And then that fructose ends up in the liver and becomes uric acid, stimulates fat production in the liver, fatty liver disease, raises blood pressure, blood sugar, increases fat production throughout the body, and locks it up so we can't use it through something called uric acid. Who knew? When you say you're, you, we're on average five grams of fructose at a time, it, that's an apple. So is that at a time? But is that for a healthy person, or does that? What about a metabolically unhealthy person? That's actually a good question because uh, a lot of factors are involved here because that metabolically unhealthy individual may well already have a turning on or enhancement of the fructose metabolism enzyme called fructokinase. So beyond that, now these are individuals who are actually producing fructose in their bodies, unfortunately, already when their blood sugar is elevated. So elevated glucose 
activates a pathway called the polyol pathway by which fructose is actually manufactured in the body and therefore contributes to raising the uric acid level. So they have to be careful. But uh, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Five apples a day, the doctor you will pay. My point is that you eat fruit. Uh, I eat fruit and uh, you know, an apple or two a day, I would space them apart. Uh, that allows your body to deal with it. That fructose is delivered slowly because you don't drink an apple. You know what I'm getting at, and that is apple juice, bad idea. But also that, that fructose is delivered in the context of fiber, which slows its absorption, vitamin C, which aids in uric acid excretion, and various bioflavonoids that reduce uric acid production. So have your apple a day by all means, uh, but you can overdo it. But the, the most common way of overdoing that scenario is drinking something that is completely unnatural called fruit juice. There's nothing natural about fruit juice. There's no, you know, there's no way that our hunter-gatherer forebears would be drinking cartons of orange juice or apple juice, right? Think about that. This is a powerful slug. You know, a 12-ounce glass of, of orange juice might have 30 grams of sugar in it. And there's no way the body's going to be able to deal with that appropriately, that's going to go to the liver and turn on this pathway to make uric acid to scream to your body that winter's coming. Uh, we better make as much fat and quickly as we can turn down energy, bump up our glucose production in the, in the body, in the liver through a process called gluco, neo, meaning new, genesis, meaning creation, creating new glucose in the body, and basically activate an alarm system called uric acid that says, these things have to happen right now. So the, you say an apple a day for most people is fine, but if somebody is type 2 diabetic, extremely insulin resistant, then it might be a good idea for them to avoid fruit as they work on their metabolism. Would you think that? No, I, I think it's important to take this on an individualized basis to see what is their response. In other words, what happens to their uric acid when they consume fruit, for example. So they may want to be monitoring their uric acid levels at home. I think that by and large, if we are working with somebody on diet and they're a type 2 diabetic, I'm going to allow an apple, absolutely, because they're, I think the outside, upsides outweigh the downsides. So I would say, yes, that doesn't mean apple juice and, and orange juice or soda or sweetened condiments and sauces that contain fructose and therefore will bump up the uric acid and tell them to become more insulin resistant. Let me get into a little science here. I think that your viewers probably are geared up for this. You bet. And that is that, you know, our bodies have metabolic pathways that are activated when either the hunting is good or we face starvation. There's a pathway that metabolizes something called adenosine. Adenosine originally was part of ATP or adenosine triphosphate, an energy molecule. And in the process of metabolizing fructose, we take ATP down to ADP, adenosine diphosphate, down to AMP, adenosine monophosphate. We have to deal with that adenosine somehow in the process of metabolizing fructose and alcohol and purines. We'll talk about them later. So we're creating this adenosine and generally what we want is to recycle that uh, adenosine back to make more energy currency, ATP. But an enzyme that's involved here is called AMP kinase, adenosine monophosphate kinase, AMPK. And 
We really want to keep AMPK lit up, active, because when AMPK is active, it's basically telling your body the hunting is good. We're doing just fine. Don't need to make more fat. You don't need to store it. Let's keep the energy burn going. Let's burn fat uh, for energy. And by all means, there's no reason we need to make more glucose, right? All in today's world, the goal, part of the goal. Let's keep AMPK active. How do we keep it active? Well, we can take quercetin. Uh, we can physically exercise that activates ampikinase. There's a drug that activates it called metformin that's used in diabetics because it reduces the formation of more glucose from the liver. That's something diabetics would not want to do is make more glucose, that's for sure. So we want to keep AMPK lit up. Guess what? Uric acid shuts it off. And uric acid activates AMP kinase's evil twin. It has an evil twin called AMP deaminase. And when AMP deaminase is activated, that's telling the body, whoa, we're getting ready to hibernate. You better start making as much fat as you possibly can. Don't burn it because we need it. Turn down energy utilization. And by the way, we better raise your blood sugar too. So let's turn on this gluconeogenesis in the liver. And by the way, we're going to make you insulin resistant as well to keep your blood sugar up. Well, that's not what we want, right? And one of the biggest influences on whether we're going down the AMP kinase side or the AMP deaminase side is the level of uric acid. Uric acid directly shuts down AMPK and works so much against all of our efforts to keep AMP kinase lit up. So it really, you know, I do I dive deep into the science? You bet I do, because it's really very, very exciting. It's so empowering to understand this stuff because it gives you tools to regain your metabolic health. If you can get that uh, uric acid down to a level of 5.5 milligrams per deciliter or lower, you have done a lot to bring your metabolism back in line in a country where the average uric acid level is now 6.0 milligrams per deciliter. In 1920, the average was only 3.5 in America. And the rise of uric acid has paralleled our increase in fructose consumption, sugar consumption in general. It makes sense, especially when you think about the mitochondria and some of the new research on how the mitochondria are much more than just energy producers. They're actually surveillance systems. And when they perceive a stressful environment like high uric acid levels, it'll want to dial down energy production. So it, it makes sense all this is happening. And uh, what are your thoughts on, on berberin? I've done some experiments using berberin, the CGM, having higher carbs and seeing what it does. So what are your thoughts on berberin as maybe a replacement uh, for metformin or something we could add into well, the mix? Well, it's described as a metformin mimetic. And you know, I, I think in that it does also act as an AMP kinase activator, something to consider. That said, uh, would it be a one-to-one -one replacement for metformin? I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I would say, on the other hand, that quercetin, one of the other benefits of quercetin is it targets an enzyme called xanthine oxidase, which is important for making uric acid in your body. A drug targets xanthine oxidase called allopurinol, and it's used for the treatment of gout for decades. And it turns out that quercetin and another bioflavonoid by the name of luteolin are almost as effective in terms of down-regulating or turning off that enzyme that makes uric acid uh, as the drugs. 
So there's plenty of opportunity there for individuals to see if perhaps they can regain control of their uric acid by bringing on board something like 500 milligrams per day of quercetin and or 100 milligrams of luteolin a day in terms of what their uric acid levels are doing. Again, be great to monitor it at home. Uh, suddenly, you know, you're on a drug to lower uric acid, you add in some quercetin, luteolin, your uric acid goes a lot lower. Maybe working with your doctor, you could go to an every other day dosage on your drug or maybe you know, ultimately with the goal of stopping it. That's of course up to an individual and his or her doctor. I've noticed a lot of people have issues with caffeine, especially caffeine in coffee. Now, don't get me wrong, I love myself a cup of quality coffee, but the truth is I've seen so many of my Keto Camp Academy students have a glucose spike from caffeine, knocking them out of fasting or creating some digestive issues, bloating, and most commonly, jitters and irritability. We know excessive caffeine and caffeine sensitivity can cause adrenal problems, which has a lot of negative effects. It makes you more dependent on the caffeine and it puts you in this sympathetic fight or flight state. And for a lot of people, that is problematic. Everyday dose solves the problem of regular coffee while drastically building on its benefits with added supplements. What I love about Everyday Dose, it's low acidity, cold extracted coffee, and a microdose of caffeine blended with collagen protein, functional mushrooms, and nootropics, which will improve your focus, your energy, and your immunity. I just feel different in a really good way when I have Everyday Dose versus regular coffee, and I want you to experience the same. So if you want to check out Everyday Dose, head over to everydaydose.com Ben and use the coupon code KETOCAMP. You're going to get an extra five on the go dose travel pack to take with you anywhere you go. I take these travel packs with me and it is a game changer because when I'm traveling, it's hard to find, first of all, a clean cup of coffee, but almost impossible to find coffee with these functional ingredients. So head over to everydaydose.com slash ketocamp. Use ketocamp to get your bonus gift or click the link in the podcast notes down below. In your book, so by the way, for those who are watching on YouTube, here's the book right here. It's called Drop Acid, awesome name. The surprising new science of uric acid, the key to losing weight, controlling blood sugar and, ex and achieving extraordinary health. We all want that. We're going to drop a link down below for everybody to go get the book. You also mentioned a few things. Yeah, quercetin was in my notes here, tart cherries, and then coffee. So what role does tart cherries and coffee play here? Tart cherries have been researched for a couple of decades and have been you know, sort of originally looked upon as a folk remedy uh, for the treatment of gout. Because it's been you know, noted over the years that people who ate cherries, tart cherries, would have less gout flare-ups if, in fact, they were a gout sufferer. So then researchers said, well, maybe there's some science behind this. And then they did the studies and demonstrated that tart cherry extract, uh, in other words, you know, a liquid made from these tart cherries, is pretty darn effective in lowering uric acid. So eat some tart cherries. Don't eat a lot because, of course, we don't want to overwhelm as it relates to fructose. But... You can buy tart, we have it here, tart cherry extract. We use it in, in certain of the love diet, that's uh, lower uric value diet recipes, and we've tried them all, or most of them. And that said, that's a kind of a natural approach, but I'm all over quercetin. I mean, that is really on the top shelf in terms of supplements that I think are really important. And then coffee, what role does coffee play here? Well, the most important role for coffee is it makes Dr. Perlmutter feel really good. So, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, then secondarily, you look at the science that supports that. It turns out that 
uh, drinking coffee, aside from being associated with a dramatically lower risk of Alzheimer's, I might add, uh, is also associated with a lowered uric acid level. So we know that coffee does tend to activate a couple of important pathways, one being something called the NRF2 pathway. And as such, it reduces inflammation, it upregulates antioxidant function, and it improves detoxification in the human body. We also know that coffee activates the genes for producing something called BDNF. BDNF, and this will be on the quiz, brain-derived neurotrophic factor is what allows our brains to grow new brain cells no matter what age we are, and also facilitates the connection of one brain cell to the next called synaptoplasticity. Uh, and we need that uh, if we're going to continue to have the ability to learn new things. So anything we could do that, that can increase this BDNF, including things like uh, turmeric, um, we were talking about coffee, cruciferous vegetables. One of the most powerful ways we can amplify BDNF is uh, by doing aerobic exercise. Yeah, yeah. That's why you feel so good after a good run, that runner's high, right? Uh, that's why the music sounds so much better driving home from the gym versus driving to the gym. It's that miracle grow, the BDNF. You bet. What are your favorite ways for, you mentioned a little bit about it, but what are your favorite ways of testing uh, uric acid levels at home? Can we go on Amazon? Do you have any companies that you recommend? Um, you can go on Amazon, you can get a, a uric acid meter. Here's what it looks like. And uh, it's just it's just like a, there's my last level, 4.7. So it's just like doing a finger stick to, in the old days to measure your blood glucose before we had uh, CGM, continuous glucose monitor. And that's called a U-Assure, U-A-S-U-R-E. That's a good company. I don't own any of that company, that's for sure. That's U-Assure. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but that said, you can get a laboratory test at the doctor's office, or you don't even have to go to the doctor's office. You call up, say, I'd like to go to the local lab, have my blood drawn, and get a fasting insulin as well, as long as you're there, and your uric acid checked. And again, the number we're looking for is 5.5 or lower milligrams per deciliter. The number seven is what the lab and or your doctor will tell you is the goal, and that's just not the goal. That, that's that's the reference range, seven, up to seven is the reference range? Right. And uh, again, that deals with gout only. The cardiometabolic issues related to elevated uric acid begin above 5.5. So let's get those levels at 5.5 or lower. That's going to be really important. And how will you know? You're not going to know until you check. You don't know your blood sugar until you check. You don't even know your blood pressure. I mean, you don't really feel high blood pressure, the silent killer until you check. Uh, so Tria, I have a blood pressure cuff here. I'm going to get the uric acid one. That's my next um, device. Is it the lower you could get your uric acid levels, the better, or do we not want it to get too low? In general, that's true. Okay. I mean, there is some suggestion that uh, too low could be a problem, but the reality is that's never really panned out. There is some correlation of low uric acid with higher uh, likelihood of Alzheimer's. It turns out that the explanation there is people who have uh, Alzheimer's, as the disease progresses, lose their body tissues and therefore their uric acid levels go down as their muscles atrophy. Uric acid is made from a compound, another one in addition to fructose, called purines. And purines are the breakdown products of DNA and RNA found in foods. But two thirds of the purines in your body actually come from the tissues that you break down. Like when you exercise, you break down muscle and then it rebuilds a little bit more than it was. 
But we're constantly breaking down our tissues and creating purines and therefore creating uric acid. It's why nobody has a uric acid level of zero. But the less of the muscle that you have, the lower your uric acid will be. We see that towards the end stages of Alzheimer's, people get pretty wasted, pretty cachectic, as it were, and therefore that's associated with much lower uh, levels of uh, muscle mass. And therefore, as expected, uric acid levels are lower. So let's transition down to the carnivore diet and eating animal-based protein. And there's also two parts to this question. What are your thoughts on animal-based protein and the role of uric acid? That's the first question. Second question is what are your thoughts on animal-based plus 50 to 100 grams of fruit, like some individuals are doing, my friend Paul Saladino. So what are your thoughts on both of these approaches? I'd say, first of all, that uh, I am not a vegetarian. I eat animal products. I eat eggs. I eat grass-fed beef, fish, wild fish, some amounts of uh, free-range chicken, but not a lot. And I enjoy it, and I have the sense that it's good for me. Uh, I, I like the fact that red meat is going to be good for my iron levels, et cetera, uh, and other components. But you know, recognizing that fiber is so important for human health, I make sure that I eat a lot of plants each day. Most of my food is plant-based, though I very much enjoy my eggs that I have probably every single day. And the point is that as it relates to our uric acid story, uh, certain meats uh, or, or animal products are worse than others as it relates to uric acid that are because they're higher in purines. And these are organ meats, uh, sardines, anchovies, scallops. Am I saying don't eat them? I am not saying that at all. But if the uric acid remains elevated uh, despite cutting out the fructose and taking the quercetin and doing all the things, it's still not where it needs to be, then the next target should be maybe reducing the amount of liver and kidney and organ meats that you eat to maybe, you know, four or five ounces at a time and see what happens then. What if you supplement? Would it still be an issue with supplementation of those? Supplementation of? The organ meats. What do you, what do you mean supplementation? Taking capsules, organ meat capsules that are out there. No, I mean, I think, again, you're going to likely have uh, raise your purines and therefore have an effect on uric acid. It's not the big issue. The top five causes of uric acid elevation are number one, fructose. Number two, fructose. Number three, fructose. And four and five are going to be purines and alcohol. So, But when you say fructose, primarily from fruit juices, not so much from moderate fruit. No, that's right. So moderate fruit consumption is totally within uh, acceptable range, provided uh, you know we follow the uric acid. Could you overdo it? Yes. One apple a day keeps the doctor away. Five apples a day, the doctor you will pay. And alcohol as well. We know that hard alcohol is associated with an increase in uric acid. Uh, that wine in men doesn't have much effect. Wine in women actually is associated with a slightly lower uric acid. The biggest hmm. issue. Why do you think that is? Not sure. Uh, it's not a dramatic effect, but uh, it might be that women tend to drink more red wine than men. I, I just don't know. Maybe estrogen plays a role there. That's interesting. Oh, estrogen plays a huge role. And we'll. we'll Go, remind me, we'll go back to that in just a moment. I want to just finish this thought. And that is the worst player is beer because beer has alcohol, of course, but is really high back to purines. Why? Because it's made from brewer's yeast. And those purines are just very high in beer. So now we're drinking a beverage that's telling our bodies make fat. So we understand where the beer belly is coming from. It's a response 
to activating this survival pathway in, in these people. To the extent that Japan, where they are so dialed in on the uric acid metabolism connection, now manufactures purine-free beer. You've heard of alcohol-free beer. Now you can buy purine-free beer exactly for this reason, to help control uric acid. Let's get back to the estrogen question because it's important. By and large, women have lower uric acid levels than men. And that might explain why there's a relationship perhaps to wine consumption because of estrogen, as you bring out. But interestingly, the advantage that women have goes away after menopause. Once their estrogen levels fall, estrogen aids in the urinary excretion of uric acid. Once they reach menopause, and estrogen levels go down, then their uric acid levels uh, climb quite significantly. Something to think about. And uh, certainly postmenopausal women should know their uric acid levels well beyond uh, in the context of gout, that's for sure. There you go, because a lot of our listeners are postmenopausal women. So it's a good time for you to get that kit and start testing your uric acid levels. And you know, the the protocols that you're sharing and you're, you're giving the general protocols, but you got to fit this into your custom, unique individual needs. And how you do that is testing your uric acid levels. So that's the best thing you can do. Then you can modify and, and adjust according to what you see. Totally. And I am, I am so in favor of the general population getting involved in knowing things like blood sugar and uric acid and looking at their heart rate variability with their Apple Watch or Aura Ring or whatever it may be. You bet. I think people can deal with this information and should have this information because it's so empowering. And you know, there's a move in mainstream medicine that says, oh, people are going to become neurotic and they're going to be you know, wondering uh, their, what their blood sugar is every second of the day and become overwhelmed with it. You know what? We need to know these things because in checking your blood sugar every year at your annual physical is telling you almost nothing. It's a snapshot when we should be watching the movie. <laughs> so true. And your blood sugars could look good for years, but your insulin could be becoming uh, resistant. And, and how would you know if you don't look? Exactly. You wouldn't. You, know, so you tell your doctor, hey, I know my blood sugar is 100, but uh, maybe it's 100 because my pancreas is working overtime. And how would we know that, doctor? And well, no, your blood sugar is 100 fasting. I'll see you next year. No, people should have access to know what their insulin levels are and their uric acid levels are. You bet. Yeah. In your book, by the way, you have diet plans, you have recipe guides. What did you call it? You called it the love LUV. Love diet, LUV, lower uric values. Brilliant. 35 recipes, you have self-assessment quizzes, and you have a 21-day program. So a common question I get a lot on my YouTube channel and social media is, I want to do keto or I want to do carnivore, but I have had gout attacks in the past. Can I do keto and carnivore if I have gout attacks? Uh, should I be worried? What would be your response to that? My response would be that the biggest player is fructose. You know, if you go on the, the sites of these major big name clinics, the blankety blank clinic website about gout, all you're going to see is stop eating purines. Don't eat meat and, or reduce your meat consumption. It's all, and then they might mention alcohol. You know, uh, we know darn well why they're not mentioning sugar. We know, you know, the, who under, who supports these clinics and, the, and their websites and all that. Uh, sugar comes from corn. You know, we published a paper last year in MedPage that was an open letter to President Biden when the 
United States Department of Agriculture came out with their five-year recommendation saying that it's okay that 10% of Americans' calories come from sugar. And there's no science behind that recommendation at all. Quite the contrary, the science would tell us that at most 6%, but probably even less. In fact, the human requirement for sugar in our diets is zero grams per day, per week, ever. We don't need sugar. Our bodies make all the sugar that we need from the carbs that we eat uh, and from uh, amino acids, for that matter, when we need uh, glucose. But that said, so we wrote this as an open letter, President Biden, maybe because you know, it's this incredible relationship with the United States Department of Agriculture because how we subsidize the growth of corn from which high fructose corn syrup comes from, who knew, that is underpinning our most common causes of death in America. And the most usurious approaches to um, our healthcare dollars. Think about it. We're supporting the promotion of the very diseases that are sucking up all of our healthcare resources. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it makes a lot of money for certain groups. So it's great for industry. It's great for, you know, healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Everybody's making money as is, you know, the growers of corn who are subsidized. So it is, as my dad used to say, bass backwards. <laughs> meaning that, uh, you know, it's time we begin looking at prevention, whether you want to, you know, talk about the Einstein quote about what really makes for genius or the yellow emperor in the fourth century BC who said that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom to cure a disease after it has manifest is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun. You know, I began carving a place for myself years ago to prevent these dreaded conditions that are, you know, responsible for a lot of death. You know, Alzheimer's is ranked as the third leading cause of death in America now, and heart disease, uh, the number one cause of death in America. These are preventable issues because they are at their core metabolic. And it turns out that uric acid is playing a prominent role. One a study of 90,000 people, eight-year study, demonstrated that those people with the highest uric acid levels had a 38% increased risk of cardiovascular death, a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality, meaning dead for any reason over the eight-year period, and a 35% increased risk of death from stroke. So it really is playing a central role in these vascular issues. And now we understand how and why it does that. Did So did you get a response back from the Biden administration? Nope. Hmm. So that's not surprising. Last question for you before we wrap up the conversation. What role does mental emotional stress play with uric acid levels? It's, it's a very good question because what we wrote about in a book called Brainwash was the role of stress in affecting our decision-making abilities. That when we are experiencing stress, that our ability to make good, sound, rational, forward-thinking decisions is compromised. We sever our relationship with that adult in the room that lives in the prefrontal cortex. We revert to a part of the brain called the amygdala, or the child in the room, if you will, and our decision-making is threatened. As such, our lifestyle choices are not the best that they could be. We're eating foods that have more sugar. Uh, we're eating later in the evening while we're watching television, not getting enough restorative sleep. 
And as such, we are making lifestyle choices that are going to play out as elevated uric acid and therefore uh, feed the flames of worse uh, metabolic health. So, you know, what's the offset? The offset is recognizing that it's happening and doing everything we possibly can to bring that adult back into the room and make better decisions. That pathway, that top-down control that the prefrontal cortex exercises as the adult in the room, that connection is so valuable, but it is threatened by something fundamental mechanistically called inflammation. Inflammation takes the adult out of the room and we make worse decisions. Uric acid primarily and fundamentally turns on inflammation. It makes sense. It makes total sense. And I, I remember when I interviewed Dr. Bruce Lipton, he, he shared, going back to your point, that high fructose corn syrup literally causes blood flow away from that prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, which shuts down your uh, the adult in the room. What about just high levels of cortisol from stress? Is there a relationship between that and high uric acid levels? Cortisol is kind of an interesting player because at low levels of cortisol, either over the long term or short-term elevation of cortisol, there is actually uh, an enhancement in, in how our cells, specifically in the brain's memory center, the hippocampus, are able to work. But chronic elevation of cortisol levels is actually directly toxic to those exceedingly important neurons. When those neurons begin to decay, we begin to threaten, again, our decision-making abilities, and as such, our lifestyle choices fall off the cliff. And with that, uric acid levels will clearly go up and then cause this whole process to continue. Makes sense. All right, where can they get your book as we wrap this up? Where do you want them to go? Anywhere you want. It's uh, at every uh, bookstore around the country. Generally, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Is, is there still a Books A Million? I think there is, I don't know. But it's, it's really anywhere. Uh, people can just go to Drop Acid Book com and they can find the book. Awesome. Dr. Perlmutter, thank you for your amazing research. Thank you for seeing the light, if you will, and changing your ways from conventional to more of the alternative wisdom. And I'm so grateful for your work. It's been a huge inspiration to me. And I really enjoyed your book, enjoyed all your books, and I really enjoyed the conversation. It was one I was looking forward to for a very long time. So thank you for coming on. Oh, wonderful. Ben, thank you for having me today. I really enjoyed it. enjoyed that awesome conversation with Dr. David Promutter. Go get his book, Drop Acid. We will drop a link down below for you to get his book right now. It is awesome and it dives even deeper than we could do in this conversation. We'll also put his website down below, his social media down below. Please share this with somebody you know. Copy and paste the link. Maybe share it on social media. And please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me and Dr. Perlmutter. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.